Well, hello, and welcome to the fifth edition of Blind Squirrel Macro, the pod. This is your Blind Squirrel speaking. Um, as ever, this is this podcast is accompanying our weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. That letter has a bunch of graphics, charts, links that I might refer to in this piece, but I'll try and make it stand alone. It also has our portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trades. Every week, I'm going to record an episode of this pod based on the feature article from the Monday Note, which covers a couple of or one business topics in hopefully under 20 minutes. I haven't yet mastered editing audio software or audio editing software rather, so I record everything in a single take. So please forgive any stumbles. But before we start, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sake, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Talk to a financial advisor. So this week's note is called Pennies in Front of the Steamroller. Um, Last week, we talked about the fate of short sellers and their battles with the professional community of short squeezers. The outright short selling of equities is a strategy seldom employed by me. It's another manifestation of what is known as short volatility, which is a risk position to which I've got a bit of an allergic reaction. I often joke with my friend Kevin Muir that he's never seen an option that he doesn't want to sell. He gets quite enough teasing on that front from another renowned short vol hater, the old chestnut, and that's um, retired bond market guru and now current podcasting legend, Morris Sachs. So I will not pile on. However, Kev's attitude no doubt comes from his background as an institutional derivatives market maker. If you're not prepared to sell options from that seat in a broker dealer, it's pretty safe to say that you've made the wrong career choice. My attitude towards short volatility is almost certainly a product of my roots too. My first job in finance started in September 1994 at Barings, that venerable British merchant bank. In February 1995, this 233-year-old firm was taken out by the trading losses of a 28-year-old trader called Nick Leeson. Remember him? Well, Mr. Leeson had been selling options, straddles to be precise, on Japanese equity futures in order to raise cash to disguise the losses that he'd created in his infamous 5.8 error account. I then went on to spend much of my banking career in the capital markets business. The word underwriting is a bit of a misnomer when it comes to equity and equity-linked capital markets activity. For example, the only risk that Goldman and JP Morgan will be taking with their underwriting of Instacart's IPO this week is reputational. If they can't find buyers for those shares, the deal will simply not happen. This is most certainly not the case when it comes to the equity block trade business. These institutional offerings of shares are almost exclusively executed on risk by the bankers who underwrite the shares, usually at a pretty narrow discount to last sale with the hope, or should I say expectation, of reselling them to investors overnight at a slightly higher price. It's a lot of risk for a relatively small reward, just like selling a very short dated put option really. To this day, the PTSD from those long white-knuckle ride nights has been enough to swear this rodent off for most short vol strategies. To continue the theme, the Gwyneth Paltrow in sliding doors moment in my career was indirectly connected to the most famous misadventure in short volatility of all time. That was, of course, the demise of hedge fund long-term capital management. 
the moment when famously Genius Failed took place 25 years ago this month in 1998. Fun fact, 1998 was also the same year that Sliding Doors the movie came out. Well, the collapse of LTCM saw a collection of hubristic multimillionaire PhDs play fast and loose with their theoretical option models and an insane amount of leverage. Dean Knutt's Alpha Exchange podcast conversation with Roger Lowenstein, who was the guy that wrote the reference book on the LTCM crisis when Genius Failed, is a much listen, is a, is a must listen, and I've put a link to it in the letter. LTCM's collapse was triggered by a rapid expansion in volatility created by a massive deleveraging event in financial asset markets. That, in fact, was a series of emerging market crises culminating in Russia's sovereign debt default in August of 98. Less than a week earlier, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority had started its stock market operations component of its Hong Kong dollar peg defence that saw the central bank there end up owning nearly 10% of the Hang Seng, the domestic equity market, once they'd finished with their intervention. My move to Asia was in fact triggered by this, as Bearings was one of the three banks that was hired by the central bank to help them manage their exit from that position. And I happily spent the first year of my life in Hong Kong working on that deal. My first client there was a guy named Norman Chan, who ended up being the chief executive of the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. And I provide a link to his mini memoir about those events in the summer of 1998 in the letter. I'm just going to read out a segment of it here. On Friday the 14th of August 1998, the CEOs of the three largest stockbrokers in Hong Kong were invited to the China Club in Central to attend a breakfast meeting called at very short notice by the Financial Services Bureau of the Government. When they arrived, they were surprised to see me, and me alone. Hitherto, the HKMA had no dealings with the stockbrokers in Hong Kong, as the exchange fund did not make any investment in equities at all. I asked them to finish their coffee, switch off their mobile phones, and then took them to the government office. They were told in strict confidence that the government had decided to intervene in the stock and futures market to counter the double play, which was his name. For the play on um, for the shorts, shorts play on the currency, they would need to go back to their offices and open stock and futures trading accounts for the HKMA immediately, as we would soon be starting the operation on the very same day. Um, the rest, as they say, is history, but that memo is really well worth the read. It's only two or three pages long, and there's a link in the letter. On the topic, well, there's always a Warren Buffett quote when it comes to these things. And there was a famous Berkshire Hathaway meeting a few months after the summer intervention in 98 when um, Warren Buffett was asked about his take on LTCM. And he provided this classic quote. He said, 99% of the time it works. But you know, 83.3% of the time it works to play Russian roulette with one bullet and six chambers. But neither 83.3 or 99% is good enough when there's no gain that could possibly offset the enormity of the risk of loss on the other side. I prefer the age-old analogy of picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. Fast forward to today's market and you can, I can see short volatility trades everywhere I look. FX carry trades are back with a vengeance, especially those ones that are funded with the Japanese yen. It's been profitable so far. Just look at the charts of the Japanese yen versus the Brazilian real, or even better, the Mexican peso. But it's a pretty scary trade when the central bank in Japan, the BOJ, is starting to make pretty big noises about intervening in its currency again. 
I was sitting on a trading desk in 20, 2014 when the, um, the, the Swiss, Swiss National Bank um, de-pegged their currency from the euro in what Christine Lagarde called, um, with the understatement of the century, a bit of a surprise. Several hedge funds who were milking carry trades were wiped out overnight. As we discussed the other day in Master of the House and the Sunday Sprinkles, Increased interest rates have also breathed, uh, given a breath of light into the structured note issuance market. Um, and we demonstrated how we could recreate our DIY principal protected note. Increased structured note issuance has led to in an increase of large for, um, short volatility positions on dealer balance sheets. Then we look at the famous zero DTE or zero days to expiry market. Um, Nomura pointed out last week that put selling has been one of the most successful option trading strategies year to date. This is basically like writing intraday insurance that the market doesn't go down for pennies. What could possibly go wrong? Then you have retail oriented investor websites like Unusual Whales that are talking about the virtues of implied volatility crush trading strategies which is when you um, sell options ahead of an earnings release or a major market event because they tend to collapse in value after the event when nothing happens or what expected, what was expected happens. And uh, as if nobody remembers that the last time that retail investors piled into short volatility strategies, it was via that no notorious XIV ETF that used to sell, um, sell, sell, sell the VIX short. And that famously blew up during Volmageddon. Um, I stress here that I'm, I'm not in any way throwing shade on unusual whales. I, I think that they actually provide an amazing service, in term, it's particularly in terms of highlighting some of the trading activity of um, US politicians and others. In fact, I quite like paying, playing vol expansion trades into earnings events, but that's, a, that's another story, and I guess I would, wouldn't I? Then on Thursday last week, um, we learned that some market maker was happy to sell sh um, VIX, VIX calls for next February struck at 180. I, I really don't understand how market makers um, that sold those options sleep at night. I actually made a video about this. You can find a link to that in the letter or on Twitter if you're interested because it's relatively complex and I think you need the visual. So what? So, I mean, what, what's the point I'm making about all of these short vol positions in the market. Um, most of the commentary on that big VIX trade that I just talked about has been centered on whether we've got the next Michael Berry, who was that famous hedge fund manager in the big short, who famously positioned himself as a, in a long credit default swaps ahead of the 2008 financial crisis. Well, the press has been super focused on, you know, the buyer of this option. Um, and I guess that's just human nature. It's much easier to sell tickets to the great. Um, it's much easier to sell tickets to the ghost train than it is to sell them to the speak your weight machine. I think that this is more a story about risk management and complacency. Complacency really seems infectious right now in markets, as the world of volatility is oversupplied for all the reasons that I described um, earlier. We've seen a one-way traffic in treasury volatility. The both the move index as well as equity volatility in the form of the VIX has drifted down ever since the Silicon Valley Bank crisis back in March. Um, anyway, we've mentioned this point before because 
falling volatility actually has an effect of compounding the problem because as volatilities are dampened, um, you get even greater allocations to risk assets from um, what are known as the vol targeting funds. My friend Kevin again wrote a great article on these funds back in May and he closed with this great quote which was, if we happen to get a quiet summer with a relentless bid, I don't want to hear about how it makes no sense. You might not like it, but it'll be likely to be those pesky vol control funds. Wait until they get max long to really stuff them. <laughs> a quick note from Deutsche Bank last week um, pointed out that these vol control funds would appear now to be almost maxed out on their equity allocations. So is now, to, is now the time, as Kev says, to stuff them? I don't know. The positioning ingredients are certainly there for a dynamic move in markets, but it's not clear to me what event will catalyze an unpinning of all this short volatility positioning. There's certainly plenty of bare focus on the potential event risk around several of the MAG7 stocks, those large cap tech leaders. Um, as a group, they're starting to look a bit, of, a bit vulnerable. Um, the, the chart certainly seems to be rolling over a little bit. Then we have... Apple's famous problems with the iPhone in China, and that's it's done some serious damage to Apple's chart. On AI, um, I'm not bought into the conspiracy theory about NVIDIA and CoreWeave, but there are plenty of smart folk in the market that are. More importantly, though, have you seen that chart of Google trends relating to searches for ChatGPT? It's fallen off a cliff. Is the AI hype cycle actually pausing for a breath? Well, if it is, that's not going to be great for either NVIDIA or Microsoft. And then we have Tesla. Um, now, this may be my biases screaming, but my, my, my spidey senses are picking up a steady stream of Tesla, Tesla slash Musk negative headlines. Probably nothing, but the, the much vaunted Cybertruck um, keeps on getting delayed. The, the new refresh of the Model 3 doesn't seem to be doing anything in terms of boosting demand numbers and there are lots of smart people beginning to question Musk's role in geopolitics with Starlink in Ukraine. So when it comes to Mag the MAG7 stocks, these, are, these really are the joists propping up the entire equity complex and right now the only two that I haven't mentioned so far, Amazon and Google, are certainly having to do a lot of the heavy lifting. But these stocks have pulled through plenty of headwinds in the past year and right now, positioning and sentiment indicators have pulled back to neutral from being a bit scary a couple of weeks ago in, in August. So do I really want to burn more NASDAQ put premium betting that they'll not pull through again? I'm not so sure. It also doesn't look as though corporate credit is going to be the vol pinning bogeyman either. Treasury volatility, as I mentioned, though elevated by historical standards, seems to be on a gentle glide path downwards. And corporate credit spreads are even more relaxed about the economic conditions. Spreads on both high yield and high grade bonds just to get just appear to get tighter and tighter. What about an economic shot to um, shot to unpin vol markets? Um, what if with CPI this week we get signs of reaccelerating re inflation? You know, one thing that's certainly going to contribute to that is going to be energy prices, which creep relentlessly up over the last few weeks. On that note, and getting back to our main topic of volatility, oil volatility looks very cheap to us indeed. Are we overdue a volatility spike in oil? In oil? 
Well, this week, well, last week we had the news of the three-month extension of the um, production cuts by Saudi and export cuts by by the Russians in the crude market. Um, the front month, um, the front months in crude are starting to get very tight, very fast, um, and the recession-related short bets in the paper market and the futures market are also being reversed. The question to get right is how China is going to react. It seems that they're finally now starting to go down the, well, ever so small stimulus track. At what point do the Chinese stop buying and, and, and stop buying crude um, at the same rate and instead draw down from the strategic reserves that they built up um, during and since COVID? Frankly, I have no idea, but the US administration has already played, played most of its cards on the supply side. There really isn't that much more SPR that they can release. And the softening of embargoes against Iran and Venezuela have really already had their supply side impact on, on, on the market. And we wrote a couple of weeks ago in our Crudilox acorn um, that we see a old bull, young bull scenario playing out. I, we prefer the old bull approach. Um, and I did mention the other day that we have recently added some more energy equity exposure in the offshore services sector and that we'd written, um, well, we'd semi-written an ACORN report on that topic. I was a bit reticent about publishing that um, for fear that this offshore equities business was, um, sector was beginning to get a little bit crowded. Until my buddy Paolo forwarded me, forwarded me a treat, tweet um, from Judd Arnold last week now, um, Judd Arnold is at Cornelia Asset Management. He's very good on the oil field services sector. And he was at the Barclays Energy Conference in New York. And he tweeted a picture of an empty conference room as one of the CEOs um, from the offshore services sector was standing up. I mean, literally crickets. There was no one there. I mean, I understand that there was a Goldman Technology Conference going on down the road at the same time. But... The picture, that, the picture that I'm seeing there is just not consistent with a crowded trade. Also at, the, um, also at that Barclays conference, um, and thank you to Nutstuff for forwarding me this, there was a CEO of one of the, one of the major, driller talk, major drilling companies talking about new builds. And he says, every time I try to speak to a shipyard, they hang up on me. This is a distraction and an abstraction. No one knows what it costs and no one is going to build one. Maybe a billion and three to four years to build one. We have a baseball bat at the office and we use it to hit people if they say new build. We need a million dollars a day or $1.2 million a day, day rates on a terminal just to, just to justify one. So I think we found a way to capitalize on cheap energy volatility. A convex equity trade on one of the OFS names will be our next acorn. Expect it to hit your inboxes during the next week. And if it's, if you're not already signed up, please do. Well, so that's all. That's all for this week on the pod. Um, in the written report, we've also got a full Acorn review on lots of ags, lots of energy stories, and of course uranium, which has really heated up in the last week. Thank you very much for listening. Please find out more about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at squirrelmacro. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating and a review in your app. And I hope to see you again here next week. Squirrel out.